There we go. The, um, there is a possible thing one could do, which would be to shotgun deep sequence a lot of these samples that are amenable to it because they have percentages, high percentages of human DNA. That is not what we have done on these samples before, so, so far, um, but it's possible and an exciting thing to do. The last question you asked was about the Simon's Genome Diversity Project, the 300 genomes, and that's present-day genomes sequenced to high quality, every possession in the genome that we can sequence. Just one last question. When you showed the Moore's Law growth of ancient DNA sequences in general for many investigators, in general, is, are most of those sequences like yours, just sampling some small percent of the genome, or are many of those a larger fraction? So our laboratory has produced more than half of the sequences that have been published to date. So most of them are published, are, are from that technique, um, but um, a substantial fraction of our, our shotgun sequence data. Okay. Uh, the grants uh, from Princeton have done studies uh, over several decades now, looking at Darwin's finches and looking at beaks and have noticed that uh, there's an evolution of, uh, of beak size based on environmental impact. And I'm just curious to know if you look at the particular points in time where you see the, uh, uh, the different uh, groupings, are, do they merge and is there sort of a, a blending and uh, at times of geological stress? And then another question I had had to deal with um, whether or not, uh, you, like you mentioned, the, the lactose uh, and uh, ability to digest milk, are, are there gene drivers associated with that so that it becomes more and more prevalent within a population? So, um, yeah, so the, I, I think again we're at the point where we don't have enough ancient DNA yet. Most of our ancient DNA is from a, a relatively narrow time slice that, we, that I reported on between about 7,000 years ago and about 4,000 years ago. And so in order to really document in detail how the changes in frequency occur over time, I would want to fill in the more recent period and allow one to track exactly when the changes occur. Really, in some approximation, we have two time points. We have the first farmers and their immediate successors uh, in Europe and the present. And so that's two points and we can't really do more than draw a line connecting those two points, but with more data, we can actually fill in that line and understand when the critical changes happen. Um, with lactase persistence, you can actually see in our data when it first arises, you can see the first occurrences in substantial frequency about four or 5,000 years ago. Um, and uh, your other question was? Had, had to do with gene drivers. I, I'm just wondering, you have a, a, a mutation and then uh, it, it seems to become more prevalent in a population such as uh, uh, lactose tolerance. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering, is there something that's driving that uh, prevalence? I, I don't, um, I would, uh, my guess, I don't know, but I think what we know, I, I think that what we generally assume is that the increase in frequency of lactose persistence is uh, driven by uh, the importance of um, milk in the diet, and that's um, very advantageous to be able to digest it into adulthood, and so people have uh, more offspring if they are able to do that. So it's just natural selection. I don't think that we have any evidence of anything other than that, although that would be interesting, but I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, you answered it. It's, but as you mentioned, that you're, you're looking at a specific gene, uh, um, and you're not looking at what's uh, maybe associated with that gene. Is that correct? That's no. right. That's right. There's a lot to do. You mentioned this uh, narrow time slice of um, uh, samples you're looking at. Is there any possibility you can compare?
compare your samples and in particular the ghost populations you anticipate to existing um, older ancient DNA, um, in particular the Neanderthal genome and the Denisovans, to, to see if those ghost populations in, in any possible way are related to, to the more ancient data. Yeah, I've done a lot of work. Most of my work in ancient DNA has, in fact, been on Denisovans, Neanderthals, and the relationships between these groups. Um, one thing that we can see, and that's actually in this work on the Near East, is we can actually see that there's been a, a, a well, actually in another paper we published a f few months ago, uh, which was on Upper Paleolithic Europe, so Europeans, 51 samples Ooh, between 45,000 and 7,000 years ago, is that there's actually been a decrease in Neanderthal ancestry over time. Uh, in Europe, so that in the first European modern humans it's, uh, that we have data from, or Eurasian modern humans, it's about 5%, and it decreases to about 2% today. Um, so there was more Neanderthal ancestry in the past. It's actually particularly interesting because these populations are directly ancestral to some of the later populations. So we think there's been natural selection to remove Neanderthal ancestry. It's slightly disadvantageous, but we can actually tell very accurately whether the proportion of ancestry in a of an individual genome that comes from Neanderthals and Denisovans, and none of these groups have extremely large amounts, except for one sample we found, which had about 10%, and we found that their fourth to sixth degree relative ancestor was a Neanderthal, so we were very lucky we found a 4,000-year-old and a 40,000-year-old individual like this, but most of these samples are much less and not, not particularly unusual for their time. David, let me ask you about what you perceive as the maturity of this very rapidly moving field. Amazing observations that have come forward in just the last few years. But what do you think is going to happen in the next half decade? Is there, are, are there many mysteries yet to be revealed, or is the big picture now pretty much taking shape? Um, thank you. Um, I think that we're really just at the beginning. Um, it's um, we've really. Uh, there are so many things to do, so I can just rattle off a series of things that one could in principle to do. Uh, we could increase sample size tremendously, um, and now that's very easy, um, and we can actually really study natural selection with really high statistical power. The study I told you about was just a proof of principle, but there's really the possibility of really doing this with extraordinary accuracy of doing scans of what natural selection landscape was like 10,000 years ago and comparing it to the present. Has selection changed in its nature? Um, Another possibility is to study what happened after the Bronze Age uh, in Europe, for example, what transformations happened since these people arose. Europe is a tiny part of the world. One could study the Americas, one could study East Asia, one could study South Asia, one could study Africa, many parts of Africa, and there's all of these places uh, to study, and I did not mention many places. Um, there's also things that can, one can do with ancient DNA which will answer questions that have not been answered. We can probably, with ancient DNA, just like we can of present-day populations, use DNA to estimate the census size of populations. You can see genetically in people today that Han Chinese have a very large census size because, on average, they have very few close relatives, any two random Han Chinese. You can see this in the data. So if we can get substantial sample sizes of ancient people, we can estimate population size in the past, something we've never done, and that's so important for economics, for uh, health even. Um, another thing that's very interesting is that this big uh, arrival of people from the steppe, how did they, the people from the steppe herding sheep come into Europe where they were densely populated by farmers? How did they make an impact where people who were already had a more efficient way of living could make an impact? There was a study uh, by this Danish group that I mentioned to you that studied the genome sequences of these uh, samples at the time of this impact, and they found that in these four to 5,000-year-old individuals from across the steppe, there is 
plague bacillus. There is the Black Death plague, and that, and that which some people thought had only jumped into the population maybe in the 14th century or maybe with the Justinian plague in the 7th century, but here it is 5,000 years before. It doesn't have the virulence factors needed for bubonic plague, but it does for pneumonic plague. Um, Five or 10% of the samples that they studied had plague in their teeth at the time they died, which means they probably died of it. So you have plague endemic on the step. And one possibility that these people suggested, which is an exciting possibility, but shows the potential power, it's certainly not proven, is that maybe Europe 5,000 years ago was like Native Americans were 500 years ago. Maybe it was a naive, genetically, uh, immunologically naive population that was then suddenly exposed to diseases of the steppe and that there's big diseases, that great diseases that swept across the steppe, the Europe at this time and made it possible for people to move in who otherwise would not have had the demographic niche. So there's so many things to do, I think. Mm. I think he's right. There's a lot of work to do here. If you want to continue this conversation with David, please join us for a coffee and cookies over in the library. And meanwhile, let's thank our speaker again. He actually had to get up there and push him off the stage. <laughs> I've never seen that happen before. Anyway, that was kind of funny. So that was interesting. Um, there were... Um, I don't know. I'm, 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 I want to find out more. Um, I know that this science is still pretty young. Um, so the most I can come away with that was hard evidence or whatever about anything was that uh, DNA that is more concentrated in the cochlea of the ear. But as far as the uh, migration pattern and all that, he has no evidence of why or anything like that. He's just saying what it is. And, you know, these people, you know, God bless them, you know, they're scientists spending years on the same data, get grants for millions of dollars to just sit and look at this stuff. Anyway. Thanks for watching, um, I'll be back. I have to take care of a couple of things. Bye-bye.